0: All right, you've you've uh, you've seen the video. We've been previewing coming attractions now for a while. We're here, this is the Arise and Shine campaign. It is, in simplest terms, as, as Bob said, it is a building program and you may be thinking, great, is Doug gonna spend the next six weeks telling me to give, that that's what this is all about, six weeks of messages about giving. Let me assure you of this. We are going to talk about generosity. We are going to talk about sacrificial giving because the Bible speaks to those things, but this will not be six weeks on giving. The goal of this series, uh, as, as Bob said, is to, to ask you to commit to a vision, is to prayerfully commit to what the elders believe is the direction that we should take. And so to do that, I want to try to answer I think three important questions over the course of this series. The first one has to do with necessity. Not, not just the necessity of a building project, but more importantly, the necessity of Grace Bible Church. Why are we here? And then why do we believe it's necessary to, to press forward with this vision? I'm gonna to try to answer that question this week and next. And then in weeks three and four, the question is more of, I would say, function sort of how questions, not simply how do we achieve this vision, but rather how do we at Grace Bible Church do ministry. Uh, this really gets to our mission, uh, to our values, uh, because ultimately what drives our ministry then also impacts our view of the future and how we continue to do ministry. It It, it is what's going to guide any vision for the future. Uh, just as we've you saw a glimpse of that and those of you in the home groups who've we've seen the presentation there we've we've consistently reminded you that brothers and sisters over the past 40 years have have provided a foundation that we stand on we stand on their shoulders and and they've done an amazing work and now we proceed forward with that for the generations that follow last 2 weeks weeks 5 and 6 get down to more of the specifics this is the what question sort of the nuts and bolts kind of what is it that we're, we're trying to accomplish and what are we asking from you to accomplish it and there will be overlap there, there's going to be parts of these that'll flow into each of the six weeks but that's generally the map if you think of this as sort of a funnel, we'll kind of go from the the broader sort of why question down to the very specific sort of what questions. But I want to start this morning in Colossians chapter one. We'll be in a number of different scriptures, but if you would turn or scroll to Colossians chapter one, I want to start with this. Why is Grace Bible Church necessary? And why do the elders believe that we need to push forward with a vision for the future that allows for growth and that allows for a larger facility? Be very clear. There is no verse, no specific verse that says that there must be by God's command a Bible preaching church in Lorton, Virginia, but there clearly are scriptures that we are going to see that, that speak to the necessity of the local church and that apply directly to why we are here. I want to take two weeks on this why question because there's two parts of it that I, I want to focus on, both having to do with our relationship to the world around us both having to do with how we engage with our world. And so I'm gonna kind of put those under the headings of protection and projection. Uh, project, projecting out into the world is what we'll talk about next week, but I wanna speak on this area of protection, Grace Bible Church as a, as a place of shelter for believers, as a place of refuge and equipping for believers. Colossians 1 begins with Paul. He's greeting the the believers in Colossae. He's thanking and he's praising God for their their growth, their faith. Paul says he and Epaphras are praying that there will be ongoing growth of the churches in Colossae. He says that we've heard of your faith in God and your love for the saints, and we are continuing to pray for you. And then we'll pick up in verse 9. Paul says, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So here's Paul, and he's praying for the believers in Colossae, and he's praying that they would be Uh, given, equipped with the, the knowledge of the will of God, that they would better know what God's design is for them and that he would do that by giving them wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they would know him better, so that they would bear fruit and so that they would be strengthened with power. And then at the very end, he says, also so that they would be equipped with joyful endurance and patience. See that last one? When a brother or sister prays that God would give you endurance and patience with joy, that's usually the sign that your circumstances aren't that great. That's one of those prayers that says, help, help Doug to endure this, help him to be patient in this, and help him to do it with, with joy too. That, that usually is a sign that, that things are not exactly flowing smoothly in life at that moment. For young believers in the early church like those in Colossae, this kind of prayer is common, it's frequent, it's part of who they are. It is because they are constantly facing new pressure. They've come out of the world and into this whole new way of thinking where there's now testing by false teachers, there's now threats of persecution, there's abandonment and isolation from family members, there's all of the, the temptations of the world that they face. All of this pressure And one of the things Paul is praying is that they would have joyful endurance and patience as they face the culture that is not embracing them, that is fiercely opposed to them. In fact, look at verse 13, and this is really what I want to key in for a few minutes. Verse 13, about how God saved them, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. The Greek word for delivered means to snatch something, or even has the picture of of dragging something, so picture a, a parent whose child is suddenly in harm 's way, and they are you, you, you grab that child and you pull that child or a rescuer who is snatching someone from danger there's that kind of Urgency. There's that kind of action to rescue. And that's the picture, it says, of us. It says of us being delivered from the domain of darkness. That's God saving sinners. So we should pause at this moment and go, well, what do we know about this domain of darkness? What is it that he's speaking about here? Jesus uses the very same language in Luke chapter 22 when he is about to be arrested by those who have come to take him who want him dead, and in Luke twenty-two, fifty-two 52 and 53, Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. That word for power is the same as domain in Colossians 1, the authority of darkness, the domain of darkness. Jesus is linking the Jewish religious leaders deeming that he is worthy of arrest and 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 hoping they are his crucifixion with this authority of darkness. The Bible's teaching on this darkness is not it's not vague, it's not speaking simply about it being night, lack of light or something like that. It's talking about something that's much bigger than that. Luke, who gave us Jesus's words in Luke 22, also in the book of Acts records Paul's testimony, when Paul recounts how he is saved on the road to Damascus, and in Paul's testimony in Acts 26, Jesus says to Paul in Acts 26, 17, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. He's pairing those two up from darkness, the power of Satan, to light, the power of God. Jesus sends Paul to proclaim the gospel to people who are in utter darkness. They are blinded by it. Again, it's not a physical darkness. It's a a spiritual darkness. In this world, until our Savior returns and establishes his kingdom, Satan has significant authority. He is not free to work outside of boundaries established by God's rule. But yet, even in John's gospel, Jesus twice called Satan the ruler of this world. One of those passages speaking about Satan's ultimate judgment. But in doing so, acknowledging that in this world, Satan has authority. Ephesians 5, 7, believers in Jesus Christ are warned against intimate partnerships with unbelievers. And verse 8 of Ephesians 5 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The New Testament repeatedly uses darkness, not so much as a reference to evil men or their deeds. Darkness is the whole evil environment where Satan and his demons exercise authority, and it has authority in this world. Satan is actively promoting evil. These are references to the real and vicious spiritual warfare that is ongoing all around us at all times between the domain of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus. Now we know how the story goes, and we know that ultimately Satan's domain will be crushed and Christ's kingdom will be victorious, but until that final victory, 1 John five nineteen says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's a a, a strong statement. This is an area where I think for a long time, Christians in America have been somewhat passive in in the sense that spiritual warfare is not something that we necessarily are highly uh, attentive to or aware of. We sort of see it as the stuff that's in horror movies when they sort of portray it there, that, that, that kind of stuff. But we were not saved from a decent life that Jesus just made a little better. Colossians 1 says we were mercifully dragged out of, rescued out of a domain of one whose intent for us was to destroy us. One whose intent was to not only ruin this life, but ultimately to drag us straight into hell. And Colossians 1.13 is saying that we were actually grabbed and rescued from out of his domain, from out of his prison, from beneath his authority, Now, let's take this back for just a moment to to Isaiah 60, the passage we've talked about in connection with this series, Isaiah 60, and and, and we've quoted verse one to you a number of times, but let me just give you verses one and two so we see this again. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 60 is reminiscent of his prophecy in chapter 9 when he says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Walked in, dwelt in, land of, sort of engulfing picture that scripture gives, and it is repeatedly saying this darkness covers the earth. It engulfs The people, the world, is in Satan's grip. That's not hyperbole. That's not a preacher just trying to exaggerate something. This authority or domain of darkness engulfs humanity, and Scripture is clear about that. Jesus Christ is great and glorious, and Isaiah 60 is prophesying how his light one day fills the the new heavens and the new earth, and it shines over all, but until then, his light shined through his appearing... Through his incarnation, his life and death and resurrection, it continues to shine through his revealed word and it continues to be reflected through his people. We we continue to be mirrors of that light, those who shine that light into our world. But make no mistake, the world around us is lost in and covered in spiritual darkness. The same evil that killed baby boys In Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, the same evil that challenged Jesus to throw himself down off the pinnacle of the temple, the same evil that filled that hometown crowd in Nazareth with such rage against Jesus that they brought him to the edge of town so they could throw him off a cliff because of something that he had said, that that kind of evil, that same evil that incited the Jewish religious leaders to believe that the best thing they could do for their nation was to slaughter Jesus, the the same evil that incited a crowd to say, release the criminal and crucify the innocent man. That same evil that only seeks to rob and kill and destroy is as active today in, in our world as it has ever been it is still a domain of darkness. And that domain of darkness wants to destroy the image of God in man. It wants people to hate God's law. It wants to make human life as worthless as possible. And it wants to encourage the world that the best thing you could ever do is live for yourself and do whatever you please and fulfill the desires of your very own heart, whatever they are. That domain is alive And well, and it is the source of relentless hostility toward people in churches who are devoted to proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and, and to those who are committed to calling people to repent of their sin and trust in Christ and walk in obedience, that domain of darkness is hateful. It wants to destroy that message and the people who would proclaim it. The the, The early church did not experience a culture that sort of tolerated them or was just sort of satisfied to marginalize them or just make fun of their beliefs. We know that shortly after Colossians that that Nero did everything he could to make Christianity out to be an enemy of the state, something that people would hate so that they would aim to, to destroy it. Christianity has always been a missionary faith. Christianity has always been under a calling to make disciples and to not hunker down and hide away and, and hope that we can just sort of duck our heads and, and, and get by. Christianity has been repeatedly called to go and to proclaim the grace and goodness of our Savior. And by doing so, the gospel then is transformational. The gospel does an amazing work in, in changing cultures. You can look at the, the story of this. I, I've recommended the Glenn Scrivener's book, Before the Air We Breathe, and, and I would encourage, if you haven't read it, And he just makes the point in a lot of different ways how in the first century, New Testament teaching was radically going after the culture, was radically seeking to transform societal views, which were the prevailing views, that sex was whatever a man defined it to be. It was whatever he wanted, that women were property and that the weak were subject to abuse and use in whatever form it took that that was the prevailing cultural view and there weren't mores or laws against it. And Jesus Christ taught in a way, the New Testament teaches in a way that seeks to overturn all of those evils. And what you see is consequently the domain of darkness hates Jesus and his followers for upending the very things that they are clinging to and works through the powers that be to attack at the early church. So while believers rightly rejoice at being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, we still live in a world where Satan hates Jesus and his followers and Satan's power is at work to attack Jesus and his followers, to attack the gospel and those who hold to it. So turn to 1 Timothy 3 and here's where we'll predominantly spend the rest of our time, 1 Timothy chapter three. And, and this is where I, I want to relate this now to to the heart of what we're talking about, this Arise and Shine campaign, believers in Jesus Christ in America have related to our culture for for many years, I would say on a sort of go along to get along basis. What I mean by that is we have, for the most part in America, freely practiced what we believe, mostly on Sunday mornings. We've largely been left alone uh, and for the most part, with notable exceptions, we've largely left the culture alone. We've argued for specific policies, but haven't always brought the impact of the gospel to transform the culture. In fact, too, too often the body of Christ looks too much to be imitating the world around it. With some exceptions, Christians in America have mostly shrugged our collective shoulders at the general rise of godlessness. We've, we've bemoaned it by all means. We're, we're upset about it but we haven't done a lot about it. In fact, it could be argued that there are more than a few areas where Christians have embraced that same sort of sex money power dynamic that that rules the world. And and, and we've done it to the point that we're almost hesitant at times to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. But what's happening today, and what's, what's different about today is that the culture is the one that's upping the ante and saying, listen, we don't like your teaching on a lot of different areas, and we'd like you to stop. In fact, we, we want you to be quiet. We, we're sick of some of the things that you say that impinge on issues of morality and human identity, sexuality, and so either you disavow those tenets of your faith, you disavow those things, or we're going to look for ways to silence you and even exile you to some measure and to label you as outcasts. It is the domain of darkness more fully on the offensive than most of us have experienced. And and that, my friends, makes local churches, Grace Bible Church, more crucial for believers than ever. We must be light. We must be going into the culture with the, the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and his love to our neighbors. And that's the projecting part I want to get to next week. But there's also this protecting aspect of what we do and how necessary it is. Because unless God in a unique way pours out revival on the land around us or some other means to turn this world, this necessity will increase for our children and their children. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want to argue argue to you, put put forth the argument, if you will, for the rest of our time, that the church in this protective work is to be like a, a refuge, a place of refuge and a place of equipping for believers in Jesus Christ. The refuge part, I think, comes in, in some sense from the language Paul uses here to describe the church. He calls it the household of God, the body of Christ, which gets all kinds of different names throughout the New Testament. Here it's called God's household. In the very literal sense, what that means is it is the dwelling place of God on earth. God dwells in his people through his spirit through his body here on earth, so we are his household, our actions then and our interactions within the body of Christ should reflect his his holiness and his grace and his goodness because he is dwelling amongst us. he is holy and just and loving but I think it's also interesting that he uses that language of household here because it's not a he's not isolating it as strictly dwelling place of God, because we, we see in 1 Timothy 5, he uses that word household three other times, and every time there, he speaks of it in terms of what we typically know of as household, sort of the dwelling place for family, the place you come home to at the end of the day, the place that is sort of your, your refuge, if you will, the place where you put your head down at night, your, your dwelling place. For instance, 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this household language that Paul's using in 1 Timothy 3, he also shows us from these other scriptures that it, it also pictures something that is not simply the dwelling place of God, though that's paramount, but it is a, it is a family. It is this, this place where God dwells amongst people who are together in this corporate community. It, it's really getting at our relational intimacy. And I say that because I think if you go on through 1 Timothy, you see that. 1 Timothy 5 starts, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a what? A father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. He's saying, Church. Treat one another as family as as parents as as siblings, as those that you you love dearly, encourage and protect them when he speaks to when you speak to the older man, encourage him as a father, the younger woman you you protect her purity, you treat her as your sister, and he 's not Merely using that kind of language just in this setting, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, to all believers, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are now doing. Give courage to one another. Be a source of strength. At 1 Thessalonians 5, if you go back to the earlier context of that passage, he's talking again about darkness and evil. He had just written that the world is darkness, but he says, you are not in darkness. Brothers, you are children of light, children of the day, so keep awake and sober and putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. But he says, therefore, encourage one another up. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Encourage one another and build one another up. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness, so now come alongside one another and remain alongside. That's what that word encouragement has, the idea of remaining alongside so that you would give courage to one another. The world is filled with darkness. It is marked by merciless opposition, but in the local church, brothers and sisters should find encouragement. We should be built up by our relations with one another. First uh, Thessalonians 511, I think it's also helpful to know that, that when he says that build one another up," he's using the same kind of language. the word the Greek word for "build one another up is household language. Build a household is essentially what it means. Build, build a structure, but it 's that same Oikos word that has household in it. Build a house. One of our chief ministries, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to take the tools that God's Spirit has has given to each of us to, to help and serve the body and use them to bolster one another. My friends, our household, this church, Grace Bible Church, has a vital, irreplaceable function for believers right here in this area to provide a refuge where people experience... The love of God that is in Christ Jesus through his people where they experience sacrificial service, not for their accomplishments, their beauty, their riches, or what we think they can bring to the table, but because they are who they are. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a place where they should find refuge, where they should find encouragement and strength. Uh, Similarly, that they are not loved less because of their lack of accomplishments or lack of what they bring. We are to be mutually encouraging and to find that love and encouragement because we are together in Christ. In a world where evil runs rampant, we need community. We need brothers and sisters to help us to combat evil, to flee the devil, to resist temptation, to not yield to discouragement. We need a refuge where we know that whatever has happened at work or at home or in our neighborhood, when we come here... We are loved by brothers and sisters who will genuinely pray for us and care for us and engage in our lives and seek to meet needs and do what they can to serve because this is family. You, you cannot, and, and, and these are the things that, that beckon at us day and night, you cannot stake your hope on changing the government or the media or some external policies. Those may all be noble tasks to undertake, and I'm not saying any of them are inherently evil, but the domain of darkness is Satan's rule, and it's real. We need to find our hope and refuge in Christ and his people, and we need to be a place that is that in every way. Now the second thing in 1 Timothy 3.15, first is this household, this place where God's family is gathered. The second thing that's pictured there is the church as the pillar and buttress, another word would be foundation of the truth. For believers in Jesus Christ, Grace Bible Church should be a refuge and a place of equipping one another to deal with the domain of darkness and engage with it because we live in this world. As I said to you earlier, we can't can't do the monk thing. We can't just sort of cloister down and hide away and go out in the wilderness. We're here and we're in it and we need to engage with it. And therefore, the church is called to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're to equip here so that it helps you to engage What's going on all around us and the attacks on historic truths held by the church is all part of a satanic worldview, a a, a man-centered perspective that says, humans defy their own identity, establish their own boundaries, tear down historic boundaries, and, and we just do what we think is best because we know what's best. And our best efforts to counteract that must not be based on being louder more angry, more clever, more sarcastic, or even trying to amass more numbers on our side. Ephesians 6:17 says our one offensive weapon for pushing back against darkness is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We must not give up on the authority of God's word. That that doesn't mean we have to go around and, and bash the culture with Bible verses at every possible turn, but we certainly need to be equipped to speak God's truth into the debates that are raging around us and that are capturing people's hearts and dividing people right and left. And you must be equipped with a worldview that is grounded in God's word so that you are enabled to discern between good and evil. Ephesians 4.12 speaks of God endowing the church with those who teach his truth to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, helping one another to be mature and to grow in wisdom. And Ephesians 4.14 says, if not, here's the, if that doesn't happen, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." I don't know about you, but I've never lived at a time where I felt like the, the sort of um, societal messaging is more confusing, more divided, more all over the map than it has been than it is today. And and the message in here is a warning to us that Satan preys on believers to make us unstable, to give us a lack of direction, to make us directionless, to cause us to be tossed back and forth on matters of truth and vacillating on right and wrong. That's what the domain of darkness seeks to do. It's not that black and white. It's really kind of vague. It's all sort of gray, because ultimately that attacks the foundation of truth that we're supposed to be standing on. I'm not suggesting that every single Christian needs to be qualified like a seminary professor. You need to be able to speak to every single issue and every single detail and and, and to address every challenge to God's truth. But... We all should be actively seeking to grow in these areas. We all should be taking in and learning God's word and helping it to define our worldview so that we can engage and we do have knowledge of the truth. And the local church is to be like, Paul pictures it, a fortress, not for pummeling the world, but for arming our people to recognize lies and speak truth. The world is a spiritually dead and dark Place under the domain of Satan, and, and it is leading an unyielding assault against God's truth. The Bible's teaching that we are made by a creator, that we are accountable to this creator, that this God established a holy law, that he sent his son to take the punishment for our rebellion, that we deserve, all of that is under attack, and so more than ever, we must equip Believers with a worldview that is able to speak those things, that holds fast to those things and speaks that truth. When I was a younger pastor in ministry, I, I think I spent a lot of time, too much time, being critical of the evangelical church in America. And I don't know that that was always helpful to always kind of do an us versus them sort of thing. We, we've got it and, and all the rest of the churches sort of our they're misguided. I think that far too often created in my heart and the hearts of people around me, sort of this spiritual elitism that, you know, we've got it right and, and the rest are wrong. So this is not that. This is not trying to do church bashing for the sake of trying to look better. But, but here's what I fear as the domain of darkness continues to attack and tell Christians, your truth is hateful you need to stop spewing it because it won't be tolerated anymore. My my fear is that more and more professing Christians in response to that are all too willing to jettison sound doctrine and, and jettison truth in order to not sound mean, in order to not be deemed as hateful, in order to not lose relationships, and so we we're tempted here to, to want to be really careful about talking about sin or immorality or hell or a God who judges because our culture is saying, shut up, stop saying that stuff. And part of us is fearful of that. Biblical truth upsets them, and so too many Christians are trying to find ways to soften or reframe, reframe that truth, and that is the most hateful thing we can do. That that is the worst possible thing we could do is to, to pull back and to shrink back in what we hold fast to and in what we proclaim as God's truth. The only authoritative word that we have from our creator is what he has revealed to us in his word and it must be central in everything we do. That's why our children's ministry emphasizes the gospel and the word of God and the life of Christ. That's why our youth ministry walks through books of the Bible with students. That's why we have women's Bible studies. That's why our home groups seek to apply the scriptures that we talk about on Sunday morning. That's why we have classes to raise up men as leaders who study and proclaim the word. That's why we preach from God's word. We are seeking to strengthen a people to live in the domain of darkness and not be of the domain of darkness, that we would be able to defend what we hold to and engage in a way that doesn't toss us to and fro with, with whatever the latest deception is or whatever the, 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 the latest trend is. So I don't, I don't know about other churches in our area, but I know this, here in Lorton, Springfield, Lakeridge, if I didn't name your town, add your town, This church for 42 years has lovingly and boldly proclaimed God's truth to God's people, and we must continue to do that. That must be the heart of what we do, regardless of how dark the culture becomes, regardless of how angry the opposition gets, no matter how intense the demand to become silent is, we must be a church where believers in Jesus Christ can come to find courage and strength and equipping in God's word. A community whose foundation is Jesus Christ and his gospel so that those who come here are better equipped to think in God-centered ways about work, sex, money, life, and goals and family and recreation and so on. And the fact that we have been trying to do those things imperfectly for sure but seeking to do those things and continue to grow is a chief reason why we are at this point, why we have come to you with this vision for the future. This protective work needs to be able to expand. Our capacity to be a place of fellowship and encouragement and equipping must meet this needs not only today, but for our children and their children, for future generations. The domain of darkness is real, and believers are In the world but not of it and that means there must be a community here that will love them and and serve them and equip them and not only for them but for their children that's why I'll bring this to a close and bring you right back to the thing I'm gonna ask you again and again there's lots of applications that we can make of this in terms of being better at encouraging loving, protecting, equipping, all sorts of applications we can talk about there. I'm going to leave you with one that relates back to Rise and Shine, and it's a pointed question to all of you who call Grace Bible Church home, is will you make a commitment to be used by God to grow us in this, to to help us to grow our capacity, to encourage, and to equip? And this morning, even if you're not ready to make that equipment, all the elders are asking of you is say, I will pray about that. I will pray for God to help me, and I will... Pray about, I will commit to pray about making a commitment. That's what we're asking you. Would you pray that God would use this church in his mercy to rescue more people in this area, to snatch them from out of the domain of darkness, and then graciously bring them into our midst so that we might love them and show them the love of Christ and that we might equip them to be able to engage with this domain of darkness? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the privilege of having brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I for the 10 years that I've been here at Grace, I have experienced the care of brothers and sisters. I have experienced their praying, they're nurturing. Back before I was a pastor here or an elder, I experienced gracious, loving people who cared about my life, who were interested and wanted to come alongside and wanted to equip and wanted to encourage. And I thank you for that. And Lord, I, I know that we don't do that perfectly and, and and yet that's not said as just some sort of making an excuse. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to to work harder at looking for those in need, to step out of our own comfort zones, and to love and, and show grace and mercy. Lord, help us to, to genuinely be a refuge for those who are looking for hope, those who are in Christ and are being beaten down by the culture, being tempted with evil, Lord, by your Spirit's enabling, help us to be that place that would come alongside and would continue to walk alongside. Help us to be a body that would be committed to the proclamation of your word in everything that we do, that we might equip brothers and sisters, that as we engage with the the popular arguments and the the cunning of, of human thought, Lord, that we would hold fast to your word, seek to rest on its authority, to be unashamed, to speak its truth. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here listening this morning who simply is at the point of maybe just hearing the gospel for the first time or an early time, they've not really come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and feel as distant from you as they could ever feel pray that today would be the day that they would come to see the truth that you, you, saw, you sent your son to, to reconcile sinners to yourself, to bring us to you, that by sending your son Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, you have made the way for those who are far off, those who would even be your enemies to be brought near, brought near to yourself, and to the body of Christ through Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for our King. And we thank you that through all of this, we are assured that our King is returning, that our King will conquer, that he will reign, and that there's coming a day when the domain of darkness will be put down once and for all. And the light of Jesus Christ will be seen throughout all of the new heavens and the new earth.